It's not my fault. It's all gone wrong. I can't leave you. I just can't. It would be better if you'd take off for heaven. You can't help us anyway. I lived my whole life with you children and Emily. Death makes no difference. What is it, Alexander? Why can't you go to God and tell him to kill the bishop? Or doesn't God give a damn about you or any of us? Have you even seen God on the other side? Not a single bastard has a thought in his head. Idiots, the whole bunch of them. You must be gentle with people. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are heading towards the holiday season. We are at episode 119 today and Erica has chosen a doozy for us. What are we talking about today? Okay, what was I thinking? I, I thought this will be fun. I can't wait to talk about this. And that well, is that the, latter part is true. It, that is true. I chose the incredibly short, slim <laughs> film Fanny and Alexander from 1982, directed and written by Ingmar Bergman, with cinematography by the great Sven Nykvist, with Bertil Gouvet, Uwe Freling, Jan Malmsja, and Gun. Volgren. And that's just a selection that I'm specifying from this gigantic cast. When you see it, you'll understand this. At the time, this was the largest film ever made in Sweden with 60 speaking parts and over 1,200 extras, and it was the most expensive with a budget of $6 million. It's about two young Swedish children experiencing the ups and downs in their family over the span of two years from 1907 to 1909. Now, for this episode, we watched the full version, the 312-minute version, and that was the version that Bergman preferred. Previously, we had watched in the theater the exhibition version, which was cut down to 188 minutes. Now, for me, having known nothing else, it was a deeply satisfying experience, and this, however, is almost infinitely more satisfying. I don't know if you feel like I do, but to me, this is an imposing film to take on. We always want to do a film justice when we discuss it, but there are some that are just so big in terms of the space they occupy in the pantheon of film that I have to remind myself that we're just delivering our response to it, and that's all we can do. Sometimes it's hard to be comfortable with the fact that we will just be addressing a fraction of what's here. To do comprehensive coverage would take hours and hours. And by the way, the first draft of this script was about 1,000 handwritten pages. So we're not presenting ourselves as authorities on the subject of this film or Bergman. And for the story, Bergman said that Dickens was a major influence, and I think we can all see that. And it's also really semi-autobiographical. Here, the characters of Alexander, Fanny, and Edvard are based on himself, his sister Margareta, and his father Eric Bergman. Now on to Bergman himself. I'm not going to assume that everybody knows everything about his life or his work, 
He was born in 1918, the son of a Lutheran minister, and later chaplain to the King of Sweden, and his mother, who was a nurse. Growing up in the world of the church, he became captivated by the physicality of it. He called it the smell of eternity, as well as its mysteries, angels and demons, devils and saints. And he got a magic lantern as a very young boy, and his interest in theater and film came from there. He began working in the theater in the late 1930s, and his first major accomplishment in film came in 1944 when he wrote the screenplay for Torment, and he also assistant directed that film. In his career, he directed over 60 films and documentaries for both film and television, most of which he also wrote, and he directed over 170 plays. He also frequently used a personal kind of repertory company of Swedish actors, and we'll be talking about a number of them today. It's also pretty well known that Bergman intended this to be his swan song as far as feature films went, and it turned out not to be quite. But I am always intrigued by artists who go into a project thinking that this is it. First films have a little bit of that. They're often fun because they have that go-for-broke feeling of, I might never get the chance to make another movie, so here are all the tricks that I learned in film school. It's that thing that Elvis Costello talks about, you have 20 years to write your first record and then six months to write your second. But each of these phases has a unique feel. And with Fanny and Alexander and other films like it, there's this feeling of, I have or want to sum up everything that I have learned. I need to put a period on this. And each one of those sets of circumstances has their own advantages and pitfalls. It can sometimes be exactly what makes a film succeed or fail. The failure is mainly coming from trying too hard. The first film thing I was talking about can go overboard trying to employ a lot of showy techniques, for instance. The final film can be overstuffed too, but typically that's with lessons rather than technique. Or a director can be guilty of softening their usual tendencies to make their valedictory address more universal. So to put it bluntly, did Berkman sell out a little bit? Because there were criticisms along those lines at the time. It does seem to be very divided in terms of, oh, the master's just resting on his laurels. We've seen all of this before, to this is the greatest thing ever created. And if he only made this one thing, that would have been an incredible career. So I came to Bergman much later in my cinematic journey. And I think I've still seen many fewer Bergman films than you. Does that seem correct? I think that's right, yeah. And so I've just got a handful to take from, and I very much feel that this is a triumph beyond triumphs. And for me, not just for Bergman, for some of the actors in here, we'll definitely get to those, specifically Gunn Volgren. This ended up being her last film, and if I had only ever seen her in this, she has made an indelible impression on me that I will never forget. Well, we watched the complete 312-minute television version for the purposes of this episode, like you said. And let's talk for a minute about the idea of the miniseries. There were a handful of experiments with the miniseries on American television in the early days of the medium in the 50s and 60s. But the first hugely successful and prominent example is one that I actually remember from my youth, Rich Man, Poor Man, from 1976. That kicked off a miniseries boom that lasted about 15 years. And I'm sure you have a ton that you remember. Shogun, the Thornbirds. I'm going to make a joke about Taipei. <laughs> Richard Chamberlain was all over those things. Winds of War, War and Remembrance. 
There were so many of them. As it was, though, Bergman's Scenes from a Marriage, which was on Swedish television in 1973, that predates Rich Man, Poor Man by three years. I had no idea. I never thought about Scenes from a Marriage starting out on TV. Bergman is really fairly unique among other titans of cinema to have done so much television, I think. Hitchcock, of course, he had his anthology series, but I think Fassbender might be the only name on that level that was such a fervent early TV adopter among film directors. In the U.S., at least, at that time, there was this notion that TV was slumming it. But Bergman was clearly on to something, and he had about a dozen productions either made specifically for television or released on TV in a dramatically expanded version relative to the theatrical version. He was showing us what long-form televisual storytelling could achieve long before The Wire, before The Sopranos. It's also interesting to me that each episode doesn't fit the same length. It's almost like he's defying us. Right. If you break it down, there's a 90-minute section, a 30-minute section, a 40-minute section, a 60-minute section, another 90-minute section. It feels like pieces of music rather than the way you think of television episodes. And this television version is just revelatory. And for me, I think it rendered the theatrical version almost unrecognizable. It recast it so much that we were often asking each other if we remembered sequences or could place them in our memory where they belonged in the theatrical version. How do you feel about the viewing order with which we approach this theatrical first versus television later? Could you even go back to the theatrical version now? Would you even recommend that people bother with that 188-minute version? I'm glad that we did it in the order that we did. And I think it was so fun to then say, hey, did you notice this the first time? And it lends so much other depth when you see the full version. As he said, when he cut down to the exhibition version, he had to cut through the nerves and the lifeblood of the film. I think if you have a spare three hours and eight minutes... That would be great to jump in with the theatrical version. And I think as students of watching the art form, I do think it's instructive. I can definitely see the benefit of that, especially when you're talking about studying editing as a science, as an art form. But the number of themes that this addresses and the intertwining of all the threads, it is impossible to properly contain it in less than this five-hour version. So for you, this isn't an example of too much no, absolutely not. And when I think about those people that say things like, oh, nothing happens for the first two hours, get out of here, you <laughs> no dopes. Kidding. <laughs> no, I could watch hour upon hour of this. Well, let's get started with the prologue. Before we even get into the action proper, I just wanted to mention each one of these acts begins with a shot of a body of water and a piece of stately music accompanying that. They are so pleasing to me. They don't have an incredible amount of significance, but I did just want to briefly mention them as an example of how well every single piece of this thing works. Even something so seemingly inconsequential as a title card, they have this effect of calming me and getting my mind set to approach whatever's coming next. I was trying to think about any other themes or motifs the water would represent here other than really clearly showing us the change of the seasons, and I couldn't quite come up with anything, but there's so much else to cover. We do have the drowning of the bishop's family playing a part in this story, but it doesn't seem to be representative of that action whatsoever. So we first meet Alexander and the kingdom and playground that is the Ekdal family house all dressed for Christmas. 
and we begin to see his imagination as well. I can't say this enough. You have never seen anything this beautiful or precise or intricate. You have never seen reds and golds and whites and greens this extraordinary. And that's due in part to the art director, Anna Asp. She was given just six months to prepare for this. And Bergman used his real-life grandmother's Uppsala residence as a model for this. And then we also have the work of costume designer Marek Vos, who had to create about 250 costumes for the principal actors, along with a thousand costumes for the extras. And then the first act begins, and we are deeply immersed in the Ekdal Theater. We have the Nativity play, and of course the first thing that I think of is what theater can bring to the world, and also all of those years that I worked on a Christmas play, <laughs> which by the way, just for you, we used the score of Oklahoma and substituted Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> Ebenezer, Ebenezer, anyway. After the play, we have the company coming together for some moments of speeches and reflection. The inescapable feeling of all this is that this is a time of great joy, and this is a very theatrical family, both on and off stage. That theatricality, it just permeates everything. We see the theater that they operate. That's paralleled with a toy theater of Alexander's, and I am in love with this image of Alexander and his miniature theater. Semi-autobiographical as it is, it ties him immediately to the Bergman we know, the director, the man behind the scenes, driving the production. And Alexander, when he begins to wander through his residence, he is significantly, to me at least, calling out for the women in his life, for Fanny, for his mother. And we see a little echo of this later in the bishop, who's also surrounded by nothing but women in his home. And I would also say that it's as much the adult Bergman as well with the significant role that women played in his personal life. Things that Alexander can't articulate at this point, but are definitely his instinct, Bergman's instinct. And in both incarnations, I think Bergman views women as comfort. Because these surroundings, with their opulence and wealth on display, it's still no protection from certain things, from loneliness, from those who abuse their position. There's a really nice shot here, too, in the beginning, where Alexander takes up a position behind a cage and looks through it and that mirrors and slyly comments on I feel like that first shot where he's looking through the stage. I want to ask you here about Alexander's visions with the statue and the Grim Reaper. Do you read this here in the beginning as there are unseen dangers for the inhabitants of the house in general or are these dangerous specific to Alexander? Oddly, I didn't think of them as dangerous. I thought about were more likely surrounded by ghosts at all times. Those that are in our imagination, that we're projecting, our family lineage, and anything that might seek to instruct us as we age. Well, the way death is treated, specifically the way Oscar approaches it, it makes me unafraid of all of those ideas. I think these visions are more an illustration of Alexander's sensitivities specifically. And I think Gouvet is such a great choice to portray that, both emotionally and even just physically. When I look at him, he is a great embodiment of that, quote, awkward time in a boy's life, unquote. He's a bored, imaginative, awkward boy who is having his first real struggle with the concepts of sex and death and faith. And you see all of that, both in his physical movements and in those dark eyes. 
And we're going to experience Christmas along with the Ekdal family. And that's one giant table for family and kids and servants. Everybody getting drunk and or horny and or full and or unhappy, just being themselves. And I think we see a moment of insight into each of them. For the women especially, I think it's wonderful to think about the full lives that they have. We're just learning about Emily, the mother, and she is one of the only women here of the younger generation who seems to have had affairs, though most of the men do. But my favorite characters are reserved for Helena, the grandmother, and her lover and dear friend, Isaac. I love that they really kiss here, even though essentially they're seniors and we're not always used to seeing that on screen. Helena is far and away my favorite character. She's the matriarch of the family, and she's slightly troubled here. She's approaching the idea of mortality in a much more subtle way, it feels like, than maybe some of these other characters. She's thinking about the balances of Christmas past versus the few that she likely has left. And I really like the way her considerations are cross-cut with Oscar, her son, who manages the theater, Fanny and Alexander's father, when he is giving this speech at the theater after their production has ended. The bond that the two of them have, Helena and Oscar, is one of the most important in the film to me. It's the one that moves me the most. And I really enjoy this speech he gives. He's deeply appreciative of this small, insulated world of the theater. They've had a successful production of their nativity play. And I like how Bergman sneaks the bishop into the row behind the family. Yeah, which I don't think you get with a theatrical version. He's slightly out of focus. And it's something that you would only consciously notice on a second viewing like this. Subconsciously, though, it turns out that he has constantly been looming. But back to Oscar's speech. He is, in fact, probably my second favorite character after Helena. And he is who I would like to relate to, I say. But I fear I am not as content as Oscar is. I see too much of myself in the other two brothers. But at any rate, these two scenes are beautifully cross-cut. Theater and home, with the playfulness in the snow, the warmth of the house. It is really magical in its ability to evoke how enchanting it all is. This entire first section is one of the most comprehensive arguments I can think of for why cinema is the greatest art form there is. My favorite Oscar moment is when he makes a little bit of a joke about himself saying, why am I so comically solemn here? I love that. And I think that you might relate to that a bit. A little bit, maybe. (laughs) Well, once everyone is home, a lot of fun juxtapositions are keeping things lively. The characters even comment on it. The servants, they object to this mixed seating arrangement. They feel like it's improper, but it leads to some great dinner conversation. And then there's this less than subtle, let's say, cut from Uncle Carl's flatulent fireworks display directly to a particularly dry reading of Bible passages, which I think is hilarious. (laughs) Everyone's sleeping. There is a lot going on. And I have to say, though, it would be a nightmare to be an introvert in this family. This is such a sprawling affair. I don't know that I could take it. What's the 1907 equivalent of just laying in the dark in your room with your headphones on? Because that's what I would be doing. Because you couldn't do it there. All of your cousins are going to be in the bed with you. Actually, now that I say that, I know exactly what the equivalent is. And that's what they do. It's answered in the film now that I think of it. And it's my favorite bit. It's that bit that echoes my favorite thing about the holidays. Being up late, alone, when the house is quiet, 
Alexander brings out his magic lantern. And this is my favorite magic lantern implementation in any movie. Not that there are tons of them. Bergman does it once or twice. But this is the scene I was thinking of when coming up with the name for our show. Precisely for all of the wondrous, positive feelings that it evokes. It's captivating. And these late night flights of fancy are really beautiful in general. I like this episode a lot where Oscar spins this yarn about this common chair they have in the room. And I especially like it for shifting the focus to Fanny for a moment. I think her response to that story reveals that Fanny has the purest imagination. And it's a nice contrast to Alexander. Not everything is perfect, though. With a family this large, with an event of this size and scope, there are bound to be those undercurrents. And we start to see some of that. Carl, he starts off as a rascal, then gets much worse over the course of the evening. He's terrible with money, cruel. He's able to diagnose himself as such, but not to change it. His self-loathing is monumental, and things don't get much better for Carl. Bergman, I don't know if you know this, picks up the thread of this character in a later film in the presence of a clown, which finds him in an insane asylum after having tried to kill his fiance. Sounds true. <laughs> and then Gustav, he's selfish, a philanderer. He is happy when he's in this comfortable groove that he's cut for himself. But my laughs at Gustav during one of their encounters and breaks the erotic spell of this, the Ekdals have a serious problem occasionally when they are nudged out of their patterns of living their unexamined lives. When he has to look at himself a little bit too much, that's too uncomfortable for him. He's just much too larger than life. At least I feel that among the older generations. Times are wont to change, and we have Petra, Gustav and Alma's daughter. She is not content to play along with these roles. And she's a nice, subtle reminder of the encroachment of new sensibilities. That turn-of-the-century woman. And I like the philosophy of a previous matriarch that they refer to, what you don't stick your nose into, you don't have to pull it out of later. They really do have a cavalier attitude about these dalliances, notwithstanding that slap that Alma delivers to Mai. Which I read, though, more as, mind your place as a mistress rather than how dare you have sex with my husband. I say cavalier, I think maybe that mischaracterizes it a little. It's more that it's the benefit of experience, showing that a couple of decades down the line, none of these things that you thought were so earth-shattering when you were younger actually turn out to be so. People come to all sorts of arrangements that work for them. Did you enjoy your life? That becomes the larger question. And that question dovetails nicely with the story that Isaac tells the children at the end about life functioning as a journey. Once we dig into it, how do you feel about the way the Ekdals go about their business? So it's a bit odd to me because I find this to be incredibly relatable, even though I don't come from a large family. All of this fooling around is not something that I really grew up with or do, but maybe it's the act of not having a ton of music that tells me how I'm supposed to feel here that allows me just to immerse myself in the family itself. And that warm bosom, I think, is maybe inviting more than relatable. I definitely feel that. These sets are so beautiful and comforting. You mentioned it at the top, these reds and greens with the gilt. This movie is like a giant wrapped gift. Though I do admit, all the burning candles on trees makes me nervous. <laughs> you have a candle thing. I do. 
Sven Nyqvist's cinematography, the art direction, the costumes, they all won Academy Awards, deservingly so. It's just beautiful beyond words. And underneath that, we do have a little family drama starting to boil, but nothing outrageous or insurmountable, it doesn't feel like. This is just a wild, sprawling clan whose attentions are going in a dozen different directions and are variously capable of dealing with their situations. It's just so masterfully arranged and it builds and builds until it feels like it contains everything you could think of. The pacing is impeccable. It's like an immaculate mixtape of holiday experiences and feelings. That feeling that we may understand that we're fooling ourselves even as it's occurring, but we indulge it anyway. That feeling that if only on this night, everything can be different and better. You just described why it's my favorite holiday. Thank you. God blesses everyone. <laughs> yes. The second act is the ghost rehearsal. And this plays out through the rehearsal of Hamlet. That's another aspect that doesn't come out in the theatrical version, all of these Hamlet allusions. I like, though, that it's not a one-to-one -one thing. Bergman didn't just decide, I'm going to do Hamlet. And so we're going to be talking about fathers in this second act. Everything is more brown now. There's lots of white and blue and gray and purple and sage accents. And this act encompasses a lot. We have the death of Oscar. We have the introduction of Edvard, the bishop who will become Alexander's stepfather. It's that hasty marriage. And this is definitely a reckoning of life and death. It is really fun to watch how this unfolds relative to Hamlet. And I like your point that it is not one-to-one. -one. Emily even addresses this directly with Alexander at one point. And since it's not one-to-one, -one, we can go back to Hamlet and we can go back even farther, I think, to Oedipus in this case. It's also really fun for me during this section to see how easily Alexander is transported by his imagination when he's watching this rehearsal. I think he most clearly captures for me how I feel about theater. He's transfixed, and that's how I've always approached it, too. It's what it's always done to me. Well, Oscar has his stroke on stage at this rehearsal, and bells are tolling ominously in the square as they cart him away to home. Fanny and Alexander, they are waiting in the kitchen to see what's going to happen with the curtains conspicuously drawn back to make the grills of the window they are sitting under look like a cross. And I really find Oscar's deathbed conversation with Emily extremely effective and moving here. He's resigned and peaceful and more concerned about comforting her than receiving comfort. The things that he's telling her here, nothing separates me from you. I could play the ghost now really well. Yeah, exactly. He tells Alexander not to be afraid. The show must go on. Everything that he communicates here, you know how all of this appeals to me. These things that he says, what it left me wondering at that point as we were watching, are these sentiments that can only be expressed by someone who has led a satisfying life? I'm really struck by that whole show must go on thing because I have experienced that. I lost... A very dear friend of mine on a two-show day in between shows and we had another actress in her place by the following week and we all had to be ready for that and we all had to work together for that but there was never a moment where we thought we will stop I don't know if that's selfishness or that idea that Emily says later that theater is like a security blanket 
And in this case, you're directly honoring his last wishes. So I don't know if it could be said only by someone who is content, but maybe is that also another element to it? If people outside of that experience, maybe they don't understand that process? That could be, though I don't come from that background. I see it as more a comprehensive whole of the way Oscar approaches his entire life. One other thing that I really love here, the way that their faces are juxtaposed in these final moments, it's something that you'll often see in Bergman, so much so that Woody Allen parodies that in Love and Death. That two-shot is very much in evidence throughout this. But this is the most affecting example that I can recall because her vitality is such a stark contrast to his waxen pallor. I noted that as well just for a second in a moment when the bishop arrives and he seems so much smaller than Emily. And his face is always bloodless throughout this thing, whether he's alive or not. Well, if they were moving in a dozen different directions at Christmas, this is the event that pulls all of these disparate strands of the family together. It gets them focused on this particular event. And mourning wails pierce the silence in the house. The sounds that Emily is making are almost bestial. We have different groups arriving to pay their respects. The bishop shows up. The theater troupe comes in. And Alexander views all of this from as much of a distance as he can maintain, it seems like, with skepticism, muttering his vulgar protests under his breath, which I find to be one of the most endearing traits throughout the film. His blasphemy, it acts as a buffer that protects him from all his false piety that he sees everywhere. And I like that Fanny appreciates it too. I think it's the thing that she needed as well. And this act ends with seeing the ghost of Oscar playing the piano, and he's in white which we will see him in for the rest of the film. I think my favorite part of that, this vision, is that in this case, obviously, Fanny sees him too. I think Fanny is shut out a little bit in the great majority of the film, but I like the feeling of knowing that this visitation is for her benefit as well. The third act is upon us, and this is Breakup. It's one year later, and Emily is contemplating the end of the theater which she says, as I mentioned earlier, has been her security blanket. Well, just a second ago, I said I don't have this background in theater the way that you do, and you've mentioned it a couple times already. I want to get a little further into how this affects you with its depiction of the theater life. And I ask because I relate very much to Emily's speech here about reality being colorless and uninteresting and finding it difficult sometimes to find motivation. I want life to be provocative and full of discovery and interesting ideas all the time. I know that's not realistic, but knowing that doesn't stop it from being crushingly disappointing sometimes. Is that a function of theater for you? How do you approach this? Yikes is all I have to say first. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole other discussion. I miss the theater on most days. I find myself more often than not thinking about it. Because for many years of my life, it was the thing that I did every single day. I can absolutely relate to how it's presented here. It feels very true. Especially with people doing other business on the sidelines while others are acting. And some people are making out at the same time. That very much happens. It's a lot of go, 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 wait, wait, wait. But I'll tell you, having set through productions, I would see something a hundred times, over and over and over again. 
I could still laugh at the same parts, and maybe that makes me an incredibly uninteresting person. Or maybe I'm just the person that theater speaks to. I can immerse myself in story and performance very easily and take so much joy by bringing something to life and knowing that there's another person in the audience just like me. It changed my life when I got to see The Taming of the Shrew when I was in school, and it has never been different. Now, having said that, Alexander's home is in a big transition, and he's confronted very quickly with that authoritarian influence of the bishop, who is putting himself in the role of father, already trying to break him down. Now, this proposal of marriage from the bishop for Emily seems to be pretty sexually thrilling for her. She was described earlier as warm-blooded. Now, in the world of Hamlet, that is a hasty marriage, but she seems to see this also as a way to know God and somehow more herself, to ground herself, to figure out who she is. So this is the act where I want to talk about mothers. How do we see that character of Emily coming to life? She almost seems like that child's view of virgin and seductress. Now, as an outsider, I think maybe you saw the same thing. It seems like a classic abuse situation that she's walking into, bringing no possessions of your own, nothing of yourself into an austere situation where you're completely removed from your family. And we know it didn't end well for the bishop's first family. I can't imagine how it would work out very well for anyone that closely associated with him. He's so venomous to me. And I was really surprised when I was doing the research to find out that Max von Sydow was supposed to have this role. After seeing this, I'm not sure that that would have been an improvement. And not to say that von Sydow is not an excellent performer, but I have an affinity for him that would have been an impediment for me to accept him as this. It's interesting to me then that Jan Malmsjö was chosen, and he's really a classic song and dance man. You can still see him performing. He's really got it all. So it's like Dick Powell getting the role of the stern bishop. Okay, for you, because you hate <laughs> Dick Powell. Leave Ullman, too, was supposed to play Emily, which I see in this case as a much greater loss. The bishop, he is not keen on Alexander's flights of fancy. And these interactions that they have are infuriating. It is so hard to concentrate on what's being said because of the way he is physically handling him throughout. All I can think of is keep your fucking hands off of my face and head. And I take it as a great insult, too, when he refers to them as fatherless. They're not fatherless. His ghost is right there. <laughs> what does the bishop desire, do you think? Is this control? The crux of the matter is obviously punishing the imagination. Why is imagination such a threat? It almost seems like he's a throwback to centuries before that element of sadism with masochism. It seems like there's something that he needs to punish deeply inside himself. Interesting, because Bergman also said there's a lot of him in the bishop as well, not just in Alexander. And I think his direction to Malmsia was also, I chose you because I know you've got demons too. We've all got them. Well, as you said, their new life is going to be austere, to say the least. And I find myself, or I did at the time, asking, why does Emily go along with this? This was so perplexing when I first saw it. She seems to have alternatives. She eventually addresses it when she visits Helena a little later. And I find her reasoning really intriguing, especially in the context of the way that the children might later think about it. 
perfectly reasonably, she is putting her personhood first in this case. She is not making this decision primarily as a mother. She saw truth in Edvard after a lifetime of pretending. She is filling a void in herself, acting selfishly, only to realize what a mistake she's made later. It did make me think of one thing, though. Is at least some of this austerity a necessary or valuable step? Maybe not to this degree, but would it be helpful at some point to leave that sheltering nest and understand more fully that the world at large is not necessarily similar to the Ekdal home? You have to learn hard lessons sometimes, right? I think back to a monologue I saw years ago, and the gist was, I needed that 24 hours, but I didn't need that 24 hours. <laughs> so you know how that speaks to me. Sometimes you do need those things, but it's a terrible, terrible lesson and a terrible way to come about that lesson. I think it's so fascinating here, the character that she becomes or the more views that we get into her character as the film progresses. I think we start out with just seeing her through Alexander's eyes, that she can only be one thing or the other. And so then she seems to be making a young woman's mistakes going down the wrong path because you think it seems like the right thing at the time. There's a bit of rebelliousness even against your own self. And she talks about taking that year to learn about herself, which not a lot of people do. And I think back again to noticing a moment way earlier when she is clearly aware of who the bishop is even before Oscar dies. And so I think this opportunity to have a loving, successful, sexually fulfilling relationship again cannot be discounted. And I enjoy that as a motive. It just makes her so much more full when she says, I'm not Gertrude. We can understand what she's saying. I think what I gather most from this section of the film, Emily's exchanges with Edward, is that everyone's God is like them. We each make God in our own image, not the other way around, like it's been advertised for a long time. Do you ever once see Edvard doing anything approaching what you consider to be godly behavior? No, I think again about that throwback when the church was a vocation. It was a way to get power and money as well, and I don't think that can be discounted. Still is. Still is. And I don't see iron-willed control being the way to... Look after everyone's well-being. Well, he's convinced himself, I think, that that path is righteous, but that's clearly just not true. He is not an instrument. He works in service, I feel like, to no one but himself. I do find a little bit of humor, though, in the juxtaposition of the bishop's religion versus Alexander's visions, as if one or the other should be considered unassailable and they are not both dealing in varying degrees of reliance on superstition for their agency. They each traffic in what the opposite side would consider foolish and dangerous lies. I'm coming at this from the perspective of a non-believer, obviously. It feels a little ironic if this is a refutation of religion that employs other superstition to achieve that. To me, as an outsider, the bishop and Alexander both simply occupy points on a spectrum of superstition, and they each use their own that they feel comfortable with to process the events in their lives where there would also be pragmatic approaches that don't require any of that. That's my bias, though. How do you reconcile this approach to these metaphysical questions? This goes back to not having as much experience with Bergman, but I think it's interesting 
that we can see that spectrum, even though it may be a bit limited, and that in this view, the denial or even the hatred of God is not atheism. It's kind of fascinating, and I don't feel like I have to really know the answer. Well, as we're ending this act, they're already in a prison, essentially. Everyone's already arguing. They're already talking about what's on their minds, which is basically what a shithole this is. They can't open the windows. So it's a terrible place to be in. I think one of the most painful parts of this, for me at least, is that I'm a little disappointed by the treatment of the sibling angle, but I know it's not my story to tell. I don't feel that there's a great connection between Fanny and Alexander, but that I think is because there's no great connection between Alexander and anyone. I feel like he is uniquely alone. You just said their windows are barred, they're in a prison, but they're not together in this I don't feel like in any meaningful way. It makes me a little sad, but I understand. The name of the movie is not Haley and Cole. You throw me and my <laughs> sister into this household, and we would never stop scheming to undo this array of grotesques that is the Bishop's family and staff. Well, on to Act 4, and brace yourself. This is Events of Summer. And this act goes back and forth between two places in a way that we haven't seen so far. We're going to explore more of the metaphysical angle, that veil between life and death, and we're going to follow the Ektal family at their summer house as they worry about Emily, their own many relationships, and then back to the bishop's house as Alexander is continually further punished for his transgressions of the truth, or at least that's how the bishop sees it. And then at last we'll see Emily coming to Helena and telling her of the hell she's living in made worse by being pregnant and knowing that she has no legal recourse to leave and protect her children. This really underscores one of my favorite aspects of Bergman's filmmaking. It is a very Bergman tendency to tie activities to the onset of specific seasons. He really does, maybe more than any other filmmaker I can think of, take great advantage of our innate feelings that are associated with spring, summer, fall, and winter. When I'm watching these films, I often find myself imagining what the day feels like, the weather, warm rainy days and the pressure that makes in the room, the relief of sunshine of finally getting to go outside, the comfort of being playful in the snow and then having that pleasure of a warm place to come home to while my toes are still tingling. I experience all of these sensations and then some when I watch this movie. It makes me conscious of how often it's not a factor or how much some filmmakers view seasons or weather as disposable or inconsequential. Oh, and here's another film convention I love in this act. Windows or shutters blowing open in a storm. How can so many windows be unsecured so often? It was probably all that lead poisoning, but <laughs> anyway. I keep saying there are things that I love about this. They just keep piling up and piling up. This may be my favorite act, actually, in the film as well. And another of those things is that we begin to get more overt hints of Chekhov in this act, which is very pleasing to me. When Mai comes and tells Helena that she's pregnant. There's a connection here beyond servant and employer. They are truly engaged with each other's lives. And I don't just mean because these particular circumstances dictate it. I mean there's a connection here that I do not feel these days in contemporary life. Maybe it's just me, but I don't remember the last time I sat down with someone other than you and looked in their face while they told me something important to them. Do you? I have a bit of a different job, so it does happen to me kind of regularly. 
But I think of this the same way I think of what I mentioned earlier about it being crushingly disappointing sometimes. I feel like this is a hallmark of great art. I appreciate the film for the self-assessments that it causes me to make. Though, wouldn't you start to get a bit annoyed if everyone was calling you up to talk about how worried they were about something else, and then you were constantly having to look at people while they told you something very important? I think it would weigh on you a little bit. I don't know about all of that. There's a balance to feeling useful. I'm the Isaac of the situation, I think. And you brought that up after we watched it as well. <laughs> okay, I'm going to tell my mom to just start texting you whenever. I withdraw the question. You guys could talk about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of conversations that you don't want to have, Fanny and Alexander's new governess. Can you even believe this is the same Harriet Anderson from Smiles of a Summer Night? It's more like Frau Blucher from Young Frankenstein complete with self-inflicted stigmata. A lot of this was reminding me of the second generation of Smiles of a Summer Night, and not just because Harriet Anderson is into that as well, but also Jarl Kula, who is Gustav. It's like what would happen once they all kind of grew up and then the chickens came home to roost. I'm watching her in the scene and it really stands out to me how exceptional she is playing worm tongue, essentially opposite these children. A lot of adult actors have a hard time interacting with child actors, but this is seamless. She is so perfect in this scene. And she keeps me off balance, too. As Alexander is telling these ghost stories, I'm never quite sure what's affecting her. Is it the stories themselves? Is it what she's going to do with this information? I'm on her side until clearly she's a rat. And since he's laying it all out here for essentially the first time, let's talk a little bit about Alexander's visions some more. Do you interpret these as dissociative episodes? Are they strictly for self-preservation? I guess I keep it more in the kid realm. It seems like they serve a lot of purposes, and sometimes our nightmares do that. They can be just dreams, they can be comfort, they can be instructive, or they can be terribly frightening, and our own punishment infliction. It's almost like the bishop is worming his way into Alexander's subconscious sometimes. I think I'm similar to you. I place them as something else, especially as Oscar's ghost, for instance, is seen by others and not always in their original home. And also, Alexander says he's scared of them, implying, at least in part, that they are not completely under his control. I don't know if we've ever talked about this before on the show, but I had night terrors. Well, I still continue to have them. They didn't stop when I stopped being a kid. But when I was younger... They were uniformly dead people at the foot of my bed and then all around my bed. And that's the thing that I saw over and over and over again all the time. And so I assume for a while I just see dead people. Sorry not to <laughs> bring that to bear to here, but I just thought that that's what was happening. I didn't know that it wasn't real. And I also wasn't particularly happy or terrified by it. I just thought, this is a thing that happens. I do love that scene when Oscar comes to Helena. It's incredibly beautiful. They're touching but not speaking. And then he can touch her, which for her, I think is what she needs. There'll be a moment later where he is not able to quite physically connect to Alexander again. And I think that also serves its purpose. I always find Oscar's appearances reassuring. Ghosts to me are nothing to be afraid of. Bishops are but not ghosts. And this exchange that he has with Helena is hands down my favorite scene in the film. 
it's so beautiful and a little sad, but it ultimately ends on the strength of Helena's philosophy. You do not shrink from the roles that you are assigned in this life. And I want to reiterate what you were saying earlier about her performance. Have you ever seen anything this wonderful? She is the epitome of the family matriarch. This scene is so touching. Her scenes earlier, opposite Isaac that you were talking about, they are full of an entire life, it feels like. And then Emily comes to see her and she gives the answer that only she has the strength to give. Expecting his child or not, you must leave the bishop. And we mentioned earlier that this was Gunn Volgren's last film. She was suffering from cancer at the time. She had to disguise her pain while shooting. And she is every moment in this film beautiful, transcendently beautiful, and not in a way where we think we're about to lose her, but she seems so completely present and full of life at every moment. Meanwhile, Alexander is enduring an inquisition back at the bishop's residence. And talking about juxtapositions here, we are now cutting back and forth between Chekhov and Dreyer. And Alexander is incredibly courageous and defiant in his limited capacity here. The bishop tells him that your confession and punishment will be a relief to you and that life punishes liars. Bullshit, I say to that, and so does Alexander in his way. Alexander is innately, painfully aware of the truth that plenty of liars go unpunished and the bishop himself is currently the prime example. He gets the cane for this and he does not cry out initially, which is I think at least some of what the bishop wants. He wants it to register in that way that he can sadistically appreciate. And his reaction to this, Edwards, reveals how dangerous he truly is in that he utterly believes this is necessary, which is so misguided that I consider it far worse than garden variety sadism. He says his love must be strong and harsh. I don't think that word means what he thinks it means. Now, after this punishment, he is locked up in the attic, and we find out Alexander was lying about the ghosts of the bishop's children and what they told him. We hear this directly from them. Do you believe this or not? Because I think the interpretation of this hinges on how much you feel these visions are coming from Alexander himself. If he's created this ghost, is their denial a reaction to what the bishop has just put him through? I think the bishop created these ghosts, or the threat of the bishop did, because I believed him, and I think his story was realistic the and plausible. Yeah. And also, if we believe that the girls, in fact, didn't die that way, that their mother was trying to save them, I think that's also believable. What do you make of Edvard's reaction the first time he hears that that's the story that was told? I think he would react a bit differently if it was completely on the nose. And I think... Again, that this comes from the bishop because the girls are so angry and vengeful. So I think that it's not coming from them or from Alexander. I think it's coming from the bishop. This is his way of using people that he should have cared about and twisting them to his own purpose. I don't know that I'm entirely sold that it's external. Because okay. to me, harboring illusions about reality is distinctly an Egdal family trait. The exception here being Emily. She's no longer harboring any illusions. She tells Edvard, I could kill you and that this baby is not going to be born. This is so affecting here. The actual reality that she had no recourse. There was nothing she could do. She could not get a divorce and also keep the children. They would be left with the bishop if she 
left the home. It's worse than a prison. It's death. We're at Act 5, our final act, and that is demons. I know I mentioned this before a little bit, but I need to reiterate how much, if I am Alexander, every day I would only be thinking about how, if I live this long, I will kill you once I am strong enough or I can gather the right resource. Fortunately, it doesn't come to that, though. No, but it's still going to get worse, and we're going to be on (laughs) pins and needles. I remember when we saw this in the theater, Lars Nielsen, the programmer at AFS, said right away that we were going to see some magic and that everything was going to be okay, which, thank God he did. That was so helpful for me. (laughs) Because that magic that happens here is heart-stopping, but we'll get to that in just a sec. Isaac, the wonderful Isaac, my future husband, only because that is how you are going to look in about 25 years, he's devised a plan to get the kids out. There's a chest in the bishop's house that he's going to buy, and through that aforementioned magic, he spirits the kids out, even though they appear to still be in their nursery prison. As if I didn't hate him enough already, Edward is apparently also virulently anti-Semitic here. So I feel like it's a nice turning of the tables that we get this nod to Jewish mysticism or magic. It's a magic that's not considered present in either strain of Christianity on display here. That is the tool that Isaac uses to defeat the bishop, essentially. It's an energy that the bishop can't understand. He's not equipped to deal with. And though it may be slightly stereotypical in the way that Swedes thought of the Jewish population at the time... It's something that Isaac can turn to his and the children's advantage. The bishop hasn't learned the more mysterious elements of the church. He's been too much into dogma. I love the part when Isaac is telling basically the story of Exodus to the children, and it also manages to sound somehow like every Bergman film ever, and also (laughs) Andrei Rublev. And Isaac's shop is incredible. You've got this puppet theater the labyrinthine paths that are strewn with artifacts from all over the world, that mummy that breathes on its own, it's so eerie. This is the perfect opportunity, I think, to talk about world building and how skillful and complete it is in this movie. This setting is perfectly designed to host the culmination of this story. It seems for all the world like a physical manifestation of all the magical, fantastic things that live in Alexander's head all the time. And these things function exactly like you would think they should in an 11-year-old's mind. His father's ghost, the notion of God, Isaac's storytelling, all of these things occupy to me what feels like equal space with equal footing. One does not overwhelm nor devalue the others in any way whatsoever. It feels honestly like a young person sifting through these ideas to see how he feels about them. It doesn't have the adult bias of already having decided, having settled on an answer that will guide their life. I really like his skepticism and inquisitiveness, though I do wish he weren't so afraid, but I wish that for everyone. Emily, though, is left behind, and that was a real nail-biter for me. Her brothers-in-law have come to try to buy or intimidate the bishop into letting the family go. I like this good cop, bad cop routine that Gustav and Carl have going on. Carl actually seems to be stepping up for once. And then Gustav's revelation here at the end is especially satisfying. It's just too bad, though, that Emily pleading for the return of the children is Edward's trump card. But I love that because she is 
acting her way through her own story to reach her triumph. While this negotiation is going on, back at Isaac's, Alexander is up and roaming the shop. He's looking for a place to relieve himself. And as he tries to make his way back, I like how oddly specific he is in his choice of words here. I think I've lost my way, is what he says to himself. And as if on cue, Oscar appears in the shop and speaks to Alexander for the first time. And Alexander is very standoffish, almost ambivalent. And what I come down to at the end of this entire exchange is, does Alexander want to be free of this ghost or not? And follow-up question for you there, would his answer change if he knew which ghost he would be getting in exchange for Oscar? I'm going to have to hold that thought for just a second because I have a larger idea about the father. I'm going to get to that in just a little bit. I don't want to answer that quite yet. Before we leave the shop, you mean? Yes. Okay. While we are still in the shop, Alexander encounters Ishmael. And the first thing I thought is that this is an angel. The androgyny of the character is so fascinating. And when Alexander asks Ishmael is dangerous in what way? It's such a smart, insightful question for a kid, for anyone for that matter. There's so much more going on here than magic tricks. This also feels a little reminiscent to me of encountering Saul in the old dark house, one of my all-time favorites. You thought you knew danger because of all you'd been through before this, but this is something else entirely. This is something that makes you acknowledge the danger inside yourself. So this next bit is what I really wanted to get to. This was kind of my final wrapping up, something that occurred to me with this viewing. And we're going to get to what has turned into my absolute favorite scene. I mentioned that Emily is essentially acting in her own story. And this confessional, this conversation that she and the bishop have about unmasking, about him finally knowing himself, he doesn't know that she has also written and produced and directed this to be his death scene. And I'm specifically speaking of the bromide that she gives him, this thing that's going to put him to sleep that will eventually lead to his death. For her, it's her exodus. But I think still those ideas are inextricably linked, and this coincides with Alexander facing his own reality of wishing for the death of the bishop. He's talked to his father, Oscar's ghost, about it. Why can't you bring this about? And so I think when he's so frustrated with him, when he says, you might as well just go back to heaven, you're of no use here. He's starting to, I think, erase the idea entirely of father with a capital F. Meaning that he banishes one back to the afterlife and actually, through his own wishes, sends one to the afterlife? He does. And also, I think there's another interesting element to this. Very early on, it was rumored that Oscar is not Alexander's biological father. So then, with the death of his imposter father, with the introduction and then downfall of the stepfather, there is no need for a father. It's just mothers at this point. Interesting, because after the fire, Emily and the children are finally back at home, and she is found to not be at fault for this, and she returns to the theater. Everything is going to be right again, and everything about this, you're exactly right, from here on centers around motherhood. There's another feast and celebration with the birth of Emily and Gustav's children, and we feel, or at least I do, Emily is beginning to move ever so slightly into that role of family matriarch. 
which I don't think she would have been fully equipped for had she not undergone this hardship. So she needed the death by fire of her husband, but she didn't need the death by (laughs) fire of her husband. Well, if the scene that you previously mentioned, that's your thesis statement. My thesis statement comes here in the epilogue with Gustav's speech. And that's when he's explaining it here to the entire assembled family. The simple joys of life and creativity, these are the things that we carry in our hearts that protect us from everything else that might be seeking to do us in. It's a hard thing to remember sometimes, but when my mind is right, I believe what he is saying wholeheartedly. This is probably why the seasonal parts of things affect me in these films so much. I can vividly remember, for example, summer days, traveling, being on the road with my friends, stopping to make lunch together, playing music, pulling over to pick blackberries, swim in the river. I remember moments like that, and I can feel that day all over again, and my heart just feels full to bursting. I know these things that he is saying to be true. Art provides so much more than just entertainment. It provides life. And I want to, before I forget to mention it, that motto above the stage of Alexander's Miniature Theater, it's taken from the stage of the Royal Danish Theater. Not only for pleasure is what the motto is. And that's what I was thinking earlier when I was saying that I wish life carried that feeling every minute of every day. It makes me think of something that I read and often say to my clients that this thing that we do, in my case specifically, it's massage and it brings up all kinds of emotions. And the purpose of it is not to make you necessarily feel better because it doesn't always work that way, but it's to make you feel. Well, now that we're at the end here, I want to talk about the title. Why do you think it's named after Fanny and Alexander? And why her name comes first. You could even talk about that. I think it's the next generation. I think it's the people who absorb, for better or worse, all of the worst and the best things that happen in a family. And the people who are most built to hopefully withstand those things. Well, then that being said, what is the most important function for you in this case? Is it being able to look back at childhood with a greater understanding, an adult understanding? Or is it to have this view of adulthood as filtered through a child's perspective? Can I go with adult with adult perspective? I'm feeling the need to just be a bit stronger right now, I guess. Okay. And thinking again about the title, this idea that they are still a unit, that he can't operate solely on his own, and he can't always save her. I think it would be a little bit the latter of my two choices that I offered you in this case. Alexander has less influence on the events of the story than the adults, obviously. But with him as our avatar, he's our surrogate, it leaves more room to look at the things that adults do as incomprehensible at that age. And it also leaves more room for magic, which, considering Gustav's final speech, is most important. Now, we talked about the order in which we saw this. And so do you have a specific feeling around maybe the best time of day to watch this or even the time of year to watch this? Obviously Christmas. Twilight at Christmas. Okay, you're wrong. Buy yourself a five-hour Yule log and get to work. (laughs) No, that's incorrect, sir. I have exactly how you need to watch it, and I've spaced it out so both your pain and your joy are exquisite. Are you ready for this? Does this come with appetizers? Are there, is there a menu associated with it? I this? didn't plan that. I will for maybe the post version. Act one, you need to watch on Christmas Day after dinner. Act two, on February 15th. 
That's the day after Valentine's Day at <laughs> 2.30 in the afternoon. That long to wait? Yes. I warned you ahead of time. Act three, end of April or beginning of May in late evening only. Act four, we're getting into it. You watch it on the summer solstice. You should start late at night and you should cross into midnight of the next day. Act five, you're going to start on Christmas Eve, crossing into early morning. You can keep the very final scenes of the party into late morning after you've had your cinnamon rolls. That's brilliant, actually. Thank you. The only problem being, if we were to watch the entire Berkman box, the way you laid just this film out implies to me that it will take four million years. Yes, I'm fine with that. Are you okay with that? Actually, I think I am. Okay. Because no matter how you consume this, there are very few films that make you feel so safe and comfortable and then helpless and then restored again. It's such an emotional roller coaster ride reflecting the seasons we're moving through. This story just has everything. Its presentation and execution are near flawless. And then you get one last ghost for good measure. Well, I'm with you. There was, though, a user review on IMDb that titled this the most depressing movie I ever saw. All that makes me think is that this person has not seen very many movies. Well, this ended up being their first and only Bergman because this was such a terrible experience. They said, if you are a sensitive person, you might be tortured by the hopelessness. And I think that they entirely missed the point. And so I want to end with something that Ingmar Bergman said. Thinking about that swan song. I want at last to show the joy that I carry within me in spite of everything. Joy that I have so seldom and so poorly given life to in my work. Being able to portray energy and drive, capability for living, kindness, that wouldn't be so bad for once. So did he pull it off? Absolutely. There's no question. This film, although it has difficulty in the middle, is bookended by some of the most joyous filmmaking I've ever seen. Where would you put this roughly in your list of favorites of his? Top five. It's up there with Smiles of a Summer Night, The Seventh Seal, Persona, and probably The Magician. And this would round out that top five. I, again, haven't seen as many, and I think this is at the top for me. Well, you may not have seen as many Bergman as I have, but what else have you seen? What have you seen that you would like to recommend as a follow-up to this film? We've mentioned it before. I chose Smiles of a Summer Night from 1955, written and directed by Bergman, with Ulla Jakobsen, Eva Dahlbeck, Harriet Anderson again, Margaret Karlvist, Gunnar Bjornstrand, who was also in Fanny and Alexander, and Jarl Kula. It's about members of the upper class and their servants who are in romantic tangles as they try to work those out amidst jealousy and heartbreak. I felt like Fanny and Alexander is a continuation of the story from Smiles of a Summer Night. It's a new generation almost. And that's not just because it shares some same actors. I wanted to leave you with that sense of joy. And this is such an earthy, delightful comedy. You can't help but smile. That IMDb reviewer would never believe it, but I would actually say this is freaking effervescent when you watch this. This is as close to a Lubitsch musical as Bergman was ever going to get. It's so fun. And we were so lucky to see it on the big screen not too long ago. This is one I would jump right in and recommend wholeheartedly with you. My recommendation, on the other hand, it's somewhat similar. It's Amarcord from 1973, and that's directed by Federico Fellini, and it stars Bruno Zanin, Magali Noel, Papella Maggio, and Armando Branchia, among many others. 
too is a semi-autobiographical story of an adolescent boy, and this boy is growing up in the village of Borgo San Giuliano in the 1930s. It's populated with a never-ending roster of colorful characters, and this is another of cinema's great memory films. It's just a much more exaggerated and lusty affair, as you might expect from Fellini, but it mirrors Fanny and Alexander in a number of ways. Fellini also ties his narrative to the seasons. There's a sprawling cast of characters, and our director's stand-in is just beginning to learn how to navigate adult life. The only real ghost here, though, is the long shadow of Mussolini and fascism, but it never really gets as significant a foothold as Bergman's ghosts do. I recommend this if you're like that IMDb reviewer, and you're the type that wishes Fanny and Alexander was only composed of Act 1 and Act 5. All the joy without all the misery in between. It wasn't Fellini's swan song by any means, but for all intents and purposes, it might as well have been. For me, he never reached these heights again. It really is such a beautiful, evocative film. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Smiles of a Summer Night and Amarcord. And that brings us to the end of episode 119. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love if you checked out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We wanted to say a special thanks to David Blakesley for inviting us on his show, Criterion Reflections, recently to talk about a movie that we love, Tulane Blacktop. Please check that out if you haven't heard it yet. And also, thanks to Aaron West for having me on Criterion Now recently to talk about the February 2020 release slate, which has some things on it that we are very excited about, particularly that Carol Zaman box and a new release of the documentary Paris is Burning. Also, Thanks to Chris Casey for the excellent DVDs he just sent us of Yes, Madam and Requiem for a Gringo. We can't wait to get into those. Our podcast network, The 25th Frame, it's home to a lot of great shows. Please stop by 25thframemedia.com to check out all of our cinema-loving friends and what they're up to. Our spotlight show for December that we encourage everyone to check out is Just the Discs, and that's hosted by our friend Brian Sauer. Each episode, Brian goes through a stack of newly released Blu-rays, covering everything from reissues of classics from the vault to upgrades of mainstream titles to all the latest stuff from our favorite boutique labels. I was actually on with him not long ago to discuss Susan Seidelman's excellent smithereens, which was a blast. And I know that anytime you see Brendan Small's name pop up in his guest rotation, that pricks your ears up. It always makes me smile. If you need a knowledgeable guide through that sometimes overwhelming flood of home media releases, Brian is your man. We are on Twitter at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Laura Cannon at the Fatal Films podcast, the fine gentleman at Fuds on Film, the Criterion Channel Surfing podcast, and Matthew Watson. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, the 25th frame, just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. 
And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Fifth Frame, a listener-supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide.